Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Megan McMahon-Meyer, MD, who is a double board-certified primary care sports medicine physician and family physician practicing in Edmond, Oklahoma. She is the director of sports medicine for the Mercy West Hospital System. As a former dancer, she has a special interest in dance medicine and is the company physician for the Oklahoma City Ballet and Oklahoma Festival Ballet. She is also a team physician at the University of Oklahoma, where she serves as faculty for the Sports Medicine Fellowship. She's been featured on Good Morning America, the Ellen Show, and many other local and national media outlets. And then today she's on the Dope Break a Lake podcast. So <laughs> props to us. As a former dancer, she loves working with dancers on holistic treatment and rehabilitative plans to get them back to dancing in a fast, healthy, and safe way. Megan, we're super pumped to have you on the show. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for our listeners, can you give us a little bit more info, I guess, on your background in dance and the performing arts, like how you got started and what brought you to where you are today? So I always loved performance and being creative and just artistic. And as a four-year-old, um, my, I was in gymnastics and my mom decided, um, yeah, I kept trying to climb the walls to get up to the dance studio because the taps that were happening upstairs. So I started dance and I fell in love with it and I never, never looked back. And so Dance was a huge part of my life um, all the way through school, and I actually couldn't see myself doing anything else um, outside of the performing arts. And so I was about 17 years old and kind of had a run-of-the-mill ankle sprain um, just before I would be starting college, um, presumably as a dance major, what I was hoping to do and what I was planning to do. And just because I really didn't get rehabbed and I really just couldn't find a way for anybody to progress me back into point shoes and do what I wanted to do. I just kind of felt stuck. 
And so I ended up not being able to be a dance major because of this run-of-the-mill injury. And I thought, surely there's got to be a better way. You know, there's got to be a way that we can treat our dancers like we treat our football players and get them back from these minor and even major injuries into doing these very unique skills that we do as dancers. And so I took a lot of non-major classes. Um, You know, I still kind of had in the back of my mind, I'd probably get back to dance, but I don't think I really understood how that would look. And so um, I studied zoology of all things and eventually (laughs) found my way toward medicine. And so Um, long walk around, I ended up in medical school and knew that I wanted to be able to provide that head to toe care for dancers. And so, um, in a really unique way, it's funny because everything kind of led for me to be able to combine my skills, you know, the dance background, the thing that I love, the science piece that I think I'm pretty good at, um, to be able to do this thing, to bridge that gap that was in the medical community and still is in the medical community. And so um, I still dance some. Um, I'll take a class here and there, um, and I still love it, um, whether it's on TikTok doing the little dances or um, taking a class at Oklahoma City Ballet. Um, I think it's something that just doesn't leave you, and so it's something I'll probably always do. Now, stylistically, what was your favorite, uh, I guess, style of dance? I feel like I use the word style too many Ooh. times. So favorite <laughs> was music theater. And so I think I'm I'm kind of built more like a classical ballerina. That was something that was kind of more natural to me. Um, Hip hop came a little bit more of a challenge, but um, music theater is my favorite. You know, you give me a good Fosse number and I'm like in my element. <laughs> nice. Nice. <gasps> And then how did you get involved with the Oklahoma City Ballet? So whenever I moved back to Oklahoma, I actually was out in Virginia um, doing my residency training and was involved with some of the companies out there. Um, Worked a lot with Joel Brenner, who does a lot in Virginia Beach with dance medicine. And whenever I got here, I just basically sought to get involved. And Mark Brown is, um, he was kind of the godfather of dance medicine here in Oklahoma City. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He's a physical therapist that was caring for the company. And he welcomed me on board and we worked together for several years. And this is this year he has stepped back from that. Um, he's taken the daddy role, baseball coach, you know, all of that as far as his time now. And so, um, but he's who brought me on and it's just been awesome since. Cause we started as a small, like civic company, kind of community company. And we've grown into this much larger thing going from 20 dancers. When I started to now we've got our 28 dancers, our four apprentices, our studio company, our trainees to where we're just growing all the time. And so it's been really cool to be a part of that. And so you predominantly practice sports medicine and like family medicine. Mm-hmm. What it so what is that like working for like a ballet company? What kinds of things do you treat? What kinds of I mean obviously you're working with performing artists, but uh, I guess like what kind of population like what what's unique about it? Well, I do I I kind of describe to people as I bridge that gap between your regular primary care, your head to toe holistic care and orthopedics. And so um, I, what I do is I did my residency training in family medicine and then fellowship training in sports medicine. So I'm not a surgeon. Um, so I do a lot of the non-operative treatment of, of injury. And so which for dancers, that's most of what you're going to get are overuse injuries, as you guys know. And so um, what I do that's a little bit different than just family medicine or ortho is by looking at not just the injury, but the why, what happened, what were the training areas 
errors? What were the biomechanics that led to that problem? Was there a problem with the energy balance? Are we maybe fueling appropriately? Are we resting appropriately, recovering appropriately? Are we periodizing our training to where we're able to move up in increments rather than just zero to 60? and to put together all of those pieces. And so um, I take care of their injuries, of course, but also their illnesses, you know, their, you know, amenorrhea when they stop having periods, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff that could affect their career that that could be a red flag for. Um, their colds, their, you know, bronchitis, you know, their hormonal abnormalities, you know, their skin rashes. I mean, all of those things that come up, um, can, I can kind of look at those things in the context of how we keep them dancing, which again, that's still a gap in the community because, you know, you go in with bronchitis, for example, well over the infectious period, you're going to be coughing for six weeks. And I, I remember I've, I've been told myself, oh, well, just rest, you know, just stay at home and rest. Well, I've got nutcracker in a week and I'm not trying to have my understudy take my role, right? <laughs> so that's, I think, not just with the injuries, but with the, the illnesses. How do we keep you dancing and how do we do that safely? I think that's the thing that I love to do. And so you spoke about, you know, obviously being in a non-operative role. So what kinds of interventions do you use when you're, when you're helping people get back as quickly as possible? You know, I think um, the Three biggest things that I look at, you know, number one are, is going to be the biomechanics. So whenever I'm evaluating any injury, I try to see how it happened. I try to look at their alignment. Um, and a lot of times I'll even come and just watch rehearsal here and there to where I can look at my injured people and try to figure out what their training error is. It's looking at the, of course, the rest, the recovery, like how they've been training on top of the, the alignment biomechanical piece. And then, you know, the third biggest thing that I, I I think everybody needs is good rehab, you know, good prehab and good rehab, you know, so you guys, I think that you guys are probably the biggest asset to what I do and the biggest compliment to the, you know, treatment for, for me that um, is basically invaluable in some instances in the problems that just aren't getting better and that have a large inflammatory component, you know, that's, I, I do a lot of the procedural piece with the um, just different ultrasound guided injections, um, platelet rich plasma. Um, I don't do as much stem cell just because there's not a lot of good data on stem cell. Um, so I do those non operative pieces to just give another adjunct to therapy. That's awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like, because you, you'd previously described Mark kind of bringing you on and, and helping to further build that community. Um, so it sounds like you have a really like holistic group of, of clinicians that you can kind of refer back and forth to, to, to really support the, the, the dancers you work with. Oh, absolutely. We've got a great team. You know, the, that's the thing with the dance community, the med dance medicine community, whether it's internationally through like I Adams, um, our, you know, international association of dance medicine and science. Um, or just locally, I think that's the thing. Everybody understands that this is a relatively underserved population and they ain't made of money, you know? And so we're not <laughs> trying to go and capitalize off of these people. We're trying to help them. We're trying to keep them doing the stuff we love them to do um, and do it in an affordable, relatable way. So I think because everybody's in cahoots and the people aren't really competing from that professional end, it makes for a really strong team approach. And so I've got a group of awesome dance-focused physical therapists that are from different groups, that are from different clinics, and they work really well together. They're not 
competitive, they're awesome. Um, it, I've got some athletic trainers that have an interest in performing arts that work really well. And it seems like everybody just is kind of lockstep. Some RD, some registered dietitians, our counseling services. Like we come in at the beginning of the season to Oklahoma City Ballet, like this revolving door of here's your doctor and here's your physical therapy team and your dietitians and your counselors, you know? And so it's really cool to see that. And so I know, like, sometimes I'll get a phone call and our massage therapist is like, hey, Dr. Meyer, you know, this person has XYZ. I went ahead and sent them to you or I'll call over to the PT. Hey, I looked at this. He's coming over and then we'll call over to the counselor. Hey, she's having a real hard time with this injury. We're going to set up something for you guys to be able to meet and kind of walk through this to where the dancer is getting that comprehensive care that is just expected at like the University of Oklahoma, like we do with our athletes. So it's really neat to have that team approach that universities have been doing for years in sports, you know? And so I love that we're able to provide that for the artists. Now that's something that we, like Danielle and I have obviously like talked about kind of that particular subject a little bit before and just the disparity between collegiate athletics and collegiate dance. Now, obviously, this is like a professional level, and so you guys probably have a little bit more resources than your standard, you know, dance department. Um, but in your experience, do you see that there's a a do you, do you feel like dancers identify as athletes, or is there are they still kind of in the in the realm of no, I'm a performing artist? It depends on who you ask. And so very frequently, you know, I kind of take, because I take care of athletes too, you know, um, like typical athletes, um, non-artist athletes. And a lot of times whenever I refer to the dancers as athletes, some of them do get offended. And some of them, I mean, one of, one of our dancers is very famous on TikTok and she put out there that dancers are not athletes, they're artists. And I completely agree. I think that they're, me personally, I think that they're a beautiful blend of both. You know, it's the athleticism and artistry is what makes a dancer a dancer versus an, a painter or a, you know, musician, you know, they have this instrument that they are so physically powerfully in control of that mm -hmm. makes them both. And that's, that's my opinion. Now you, it depends on who you ask. Like I said, many of the male dancers, they know they're very powerful athletes. And so they tend to more gravitate toward that. But then again, many of them were multi-sport athletes anyway. So they're not as offended by the idea of using both. So I think it's a personal preference. Um, you know, I, I call them, call them whatever they want to be called. Cause they're both amazing athletes and amazing artists. Mm. I, li I like that response. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think most female ballet dancers are going to push more towards the artistic side, whereas the male dancers are like, no, I'm lifting these women in the air. I'm doing these double tours and these high skill movements that require so much athleticism to go into them. So true. And when, I mean, and it's fair if you do see like a gender bias to that because mm. typically just looking at the competitiveness, you know, you get to a certain level and all the women are equally athletic, you know, it's the artists that really stand apart, you know, and it's the thing that sells it is that artistry. So I completely get it because that's definitely something to be proud of. And, you know, I, I think it's just a little bit different than male versus female dance role sometimes, but artistry is artistry in both and so much a part of it and so fun to watch. Mm. It's just interesting because we, we've had this, Danielle and I talk about this stuff all the time. Um, and it, I guess it's just like the cultural identity that kind of comes with dance. And I feel like we, when we look at like any other athletic endeavor, sport, what have you, we have all this like stress science stuff and like 
you know, there's all these models for what we should be doing in the off season how we can prepare our bodies, whether it's cross training, diet, sleep stuff. But I feel like sometimes because of that almost identity change of like, no, I'm an artist, those things tend to be a little bit less accessible to the, the dance community. Sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I agree. And so I guess with that, you, we know one of the things that you're pretty passionate about is, is like diet and, and kind of like management. Can you, can you speak about that and like what, what you do to counsel people and what your recommendations are? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, gets overlooked a lot in any sport is, you know, just when you get to a certain level, especially as an elite dancer and elite athlete, how important the fueling and recovery is, how important that it's not just about the training, that it's about, you know, what you're doing when you're not training. And so I think a lot of injuries um, can oftentimes be prevented by just taking care of your instrument, taking care of your machine, if you will. And so the analogy I use a lot, um, and I know all the dancers I take care of, if anybody is listening, is probably sick of hearing this, but I use the car analogy a lot in that mm -hmm. it's really important that we look at our, our machines um, like we would look at a, a super nice, you know, $200,000, like top of the line sports car that we're trying to race. And so if I'm going to race this, you know, amazing race car, you know, I'm going to make sure that it's in tip top condition. You know, I'm going to be checking in periodically. I'm going to putting in, be putting in not only the best type of gas, I'm not going for that 10% unleaded, you know, I'm putting in the stuff that you can't buy at the gas station, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm making sure I'm putting in enough so that I'm making it around before running out of gas. Otherwise, if you're trying to drive this engine with no gas, I mean, you're going to start messing stuff up. And so I think looking at that and thinking about that mindset and applying it to your body you know, we need to be thinking about fuel timing, making sure we're pit stopping enough to replenish the fuel. We're putting in the right types of fuel. We're making sure that we're doing all of the things to keep our engine clean and functional because otherwise our bodies will start to break down. And so I call it in terms of, uh, or I refer to it in terms of energy balance. So the energy in needs to equal energy out so that our bodies don't start breaking down because they got to find the energy from somewhere. And so um, that's a big thing that I harp on a lot because as, Usually people find themselves in a really good diet. They're eating pretty healthy. And then we get stressed and rehearsals get harder and busier. And now I don't have time to eat. And I feel like I'm going to vomit if I eat right before a rehearsal. And so I maybe skip that or eat it just a little bit. Or I feel like I'm keeping up okay, eating enough, but then I increase training and I don't increase intake. And so as a result, our energy balance gets off and our body starts to pull from somewhere. And so um, the first place we often see that come from is going to be the hormones. And so you'll see energy tanks. You'll see um, sometimes people get emotional. You know, it's not just the stress of performance that makes people like emotional, like, messes around the time, you know, shows a lot of that is that you're running on empty, you know? And so your body is literally like pulling from somewhere else. So you're just not making what you need to, to get through without that hormonal support and without even the proteins and everything else that comes into good nutrition, your body, body physically starts to break down. And whether that's going to be from overuse injuries, whether that's going to be from broken bones, um, you know, we start to see those things that can become minor nuisances or even career enders. And so I think that's where it's important is whenever you, dancers start to feel and any athlete starts to feel, okay, I'm, I'm just not keeping up as well. I'm more fatigued than I should be. I'm kind of feeling depressed and I'm not sure why I've stopped having a period. All of those are the body's signals on, Hey, 
I need something. And so it's a good idea to just step back, check in. Well, how am I doing? Am I keeping up okay? So that you don't have those things come up that could completely derail what you're trying to do. And so um, the other piece that I use with the car analogy is there are a lot of really sexy sports cars out there. You know, if we're looking, you know, I can have a super sweet Lambo right next to an amazing Corvette, you know, and it doesn't mean one is better than the other. You know, some people prefer a Lambo, some people prefer a Corvette, but they're both amazing, awesome machines that are going to race beautifully around the track. And so we don't need to compare the form of one to the form of the other. And we just need to focus on the way we take care of our, our car, the way we keep it tuned and the way that we're fueling. And I think that's the thing with that's very hard in dance because there's so much comparison that's just in t- inherent to any aesthetic sport that a lot of times that comparison can really affect that intake. And, you know, I, I think that as long as we're looking at, okay, what I have is good and I'm going to focus on what I've got and how I can keep the function good. I think that it helps to take the, the focus off the form a bit and helps you to just be happier and healthier overall. I am also really passionate about this topic because I struggled in college with finding a correct energy balance. And in my sophomore and junior year, when I was put more into balancing rep and rep that required you to be leaner, I started to become praised to a greater degree when I started to drop pounds. And especially when that performance state came closer there was even more pressure to lean down and lean down and lean down as your intensity is going up. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just speaking from a dancer perspective. I, I felt my energy dropping and my jumps not being as high or powerful, but I was getting praised by the choreographers and all of my teachers. So how do you instruct your professional or student dancers to combat that issue that probably many dancers are going to run into? That's what I think is so hard. You know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, because you can say all day long, you know, hey, this is what's going on. This is what you need to be focusing on. This doesn't matter, but it matters. When you're getting cast and stuff because you look a certain way, it matters. And I think the more that you can kind of reiterate the function piece and the physical performance that you get whenever you're fully tuned up, I think that that can help a lot. And then too, just talking about the risk associated, I think hits home with a lot of them, but a lot of times it takes getting injured to see that. And so the more that we can start to change the culture by talking about this as a group. And so I start talking about this day one of welcome to Oklahoma city ballet, welcome to OU dance. I'm Dr. Meyer, and we're going to talk about energy balance in front of all your teachers and in front of all of you so you guys can help watch for each other because this is something that culturally has started to shift but has a long way to go at the same time. And so, um, because I I get it, you know, back whenever I was dancing, you were told you weren't working hard enough if you're still having a period. Um, I, uh, sorry, this is a little TMI, but, you know, I had a little bit larger chest for my frame, and um, I remember I did a character piece in a competition whenever I was like 12 or 13 years old. And I was told that it was way too sexy. It was like, I mean, all of my, in this competition feedback was focused on my chest and my chest was covered, completely covered. And it was just like the the character piece. And as a 12 year old, it was just kind of like, I felt very violated, like how much people are talking about my body. And I know that that's part of the sport, but the more that we can focus 
less on the physical and make that just feedback that we're giving to our competition judges, to our instructors, to our just peers dancing. I think that it can change at least the conversation a little bit to where we don't have this like constant criticism from the outside that makes that constant, you know, monologue on the inside that leads us to some unhealthy habits. So are there general, when you're talking about energy balance, are there general like nutritional recommendations or, or, um, diet recommendations that you provide when you're talking about this stuff? I do. Um, kind of looking at the individual dancer and seeing where the deficit is. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's just it's an intentional, um, but most of the time I find with the dancers, it's actually unintentional. And so finding where we can fit things in that works for them. Um, you know, I think an easy place a lot of dancers, you know, energy defi- deficiency or not can improve upon is their post-workout. You know, you look at you know, all my OU athletes, the OU football players, as soon as they are finishing in the weight room and they're training, they're getting a a post-workout recovery shake or, you know, something to be able to fuel and replace what they just lost. And that's encouraged. But in dance, a lot of times they're packing up to go to their second jobs to try to pay the bills. You know, there's not a lot of time. And so figuring out things that work for them, um, there are different nutritional ratios that you're shooting for based on kind of what type of athlete you are. And so I think that's kind of getting a little specific um, Mm -hmm. because it's already hard enough to just keep up with the fueling. So I think where Mm -hmm. can we get a little bit in? Because it doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel. And I think a big thing with my dancers is they're worried I'm going to make them gain weight. They're worried I'm going to change how they're looking. Oh no, if we're doing this right, we're maintaining, we're keeping everything where it should be. If your body needs to gain some weight, you know, to be healthier, well, that's a different story. But a lot of times you can add a lot of calories when you're in energy deficit and you won't gain a pound because that's what your body needed all along. And so I think like teaching people that piece, like, oh, okay, I can do this. I think it's a little less intimidating when you're looking at, okay, how do I meet you where you're at? Yeah. Yeah, And going along with that, Can you talk a little bit about losing periods in dance? Because I remember being so thankful that my period started late, which was probably not the healthy thing. But, you know, we were doing Swan Lake and all these ballets that had nude or white outfits. And I was like, thank goodness I don't have my period. Like, I hope I don't have it for a long time. And that did lead to issues down the line. So can you talk about some of those issues that you see in dancers? Yeah, so... The energy balance I was talking about, the first place that your body steals from being the hormones, I mean, if your hormones are kind of under-supported, you're not going to have your period. And if you don't have those hormones, like estrogen specifically, and in men, testosterone, those are the hormones that really support bone density and strength. The biggest risk that concerns me is that our bones kind of max out all the strength we're going to get by our early to mid twenties. And so that's kind of scary because like, I mean, many of these professional dancers, I mean, they're as strong as they're going to be. So whenever you're, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, working really hard, you know, and you have this delayed, you know, what's called primary amenorrhea, meaning your, your first period is delayed. Or if you've been dancing and you've already been having your period and then it just goes away, that secondary amenorrhea, both of those are like stopping hormones at the time we need those hormones to get those bones strong. So these, these 
situations where those hormones drop out can actually predispose you to osteoporosis down the road towards stress fractures at that time. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff with that, that, you know, we just need those hormones to support many different organ systems. And so, um, I think that really making, especially parents aware to be watching for that, I think is important. Um, just so it becomes more commonplace. And so that's, that's a piece that I, I don't know that my mom ever knew like that, it, that was an issue. You know, I don't think that my friends and I talked about it much other than like, high five, you're not having a period. <laughs> like, no, let's change. Let's change all of that. Let's, let's change that from being like, a, Oh, this is happening to like, okay, this is telling me my body is healthy. I'm doing the right things, you know, got it, you know? And so, and um, now that's a completely different thing. If your doctors put you on, you know, medicines or things like that. I mean, if your doctor is treating you and you're not having a period, you know, that's a different story. So I don't want to like poo poo on like what other people are experiencing from their own health. But in general, if you're working really hard and you stop having a period, it's probably something to pay attention to. Now, how often do you, do you see like amenorrhea? Because I think in some of the literature I've seen, it's almost up to about 50% in ballet. Um, I, I have a lot. And so there's a fair amount. I think it's hard to tell because a lot of girls just in general, you know, especially in the pre-professional and professional companies are going to be on birth control, you know, just already going to be on birth control for other reasons. And so that's going to artificially cause or take away a period. So it's really hard to say what the actual numbers are just as far as incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that where that's a red flag for us, it's not the only thing. It's not the be all and all. You know, if we're working on tuning everybody up and we're not just saying, oh, well, you have a period, you're good. You know, I think that if we're doing like broad strokes, like, okay, company, we're talking to you men, we're talking to you women, um, make sure everybody is keeping up with it, then I think that that's a, that's a good approach to have to where it just becomes more of the culture. And so that's my goal in the companies I'm affiliated with is just to make it a culture of being healthy, strong athletes. And, and certainly- artists. You could you could still have a period and, and be, you know, uh, maybe have a deficit in the way that you're managing like overall health. Like there's there's always For potential sure. things you could improve upon, but like obviously that's a pretty big warning sign that hey we might need to address something. Absolutely, and I mean I use this I have this one athlete that I was treating that I think she's I use her as an example a lot. She was having normal periods. She was normal body weight. She was very fit, very active, um, a division one runner. And she just kept having an injury over and over. She had a great freshman season, sophomore, junior season, um, injured, injured, had a red shirt. And she's trying to come back her senior year and she's just not getting better. So that's how she was referred to me. And we do this whole workup. Basically, long story short, she ends up being in like an 80 to 100 calorie deficit from what we found what her need was. So she gets that tuned up. She doesn't gain an ounce of weight while she's adding all of this extra caloric intake. But that with her training program and this adjusted intake for her training program, she went from being redshirted and injured most of her collegiate career to All-American. For 80 calories, like that's bananas, you know? And so <laughs> that's where, how, how important it is, is that for her, that little bit of being off was the difference between being sidelined from an injury, even though she was having periods, even though she was normal weight and the difference between being all American. And so this stuff, I mean, it's, it's minor changes a lot of the times that can make all the difference. I agree with you. I mean, that is bananas because she probably could have just eaten a banana and, and made up that. Stop it. You're so right. It's a, yes. 
Oh my gosh. And are you telling your athletes, say she has to eat a hundred more calories a day. Are you instructing her to track her calories in order to make sure that she's eating that amount? Or are you telling your athletes just to eat an extra banana every day, right? So they're eating X amount, just add in a banana between rehearsals. So where this particular athlete was at, um, we're quite spoiled. We have that whole team around her, you know, and so that was actually guided by one of our dietitians that was working with her. I, I can't take credit for that, that win. That was actually their win. And so what they do is a lot of times they'll just have the athletes take a picture of what they, they're eating and kind of what they typically eat. And then they'll just go over it together saying, okay, well, this looks pretty good. Maybe add this here, maybe add more of that there so that we're not doing things to perseverate on like numbers. Calories and weight, those can be really tricky things to track because, you know, if I'm looking at any number, whether that's going to be the length of my hair, if I'm measuring it every day or a weight on the scale, you get kind of hyper-focused on those sort of things, things like numbers and calories. And so that's not the point. It's the point is getting to the point where you're getting used to making those good decisions and adding those different things in a way that just makes sense, that's easy and approachable, rather than like, okay, I've got to look at the back of this box and count how many calories, because that's not real life. That's just not realistic most of the time. So that's where kind of getting into those habits on this is what my plate should look like. Okay, here's a place you could add. Here's a place you could add. And then it was just basically from talking to the dietitian that we found here's where the deficit was. But um, yeah, I, I just think that in general, habits over numbers is important. I, I love that idea of like taking a picture of your food. Yeah. I feel like that it, they hit, like strikes such a chord in like today's like Instagram, you know, like <laughs> story pick before you consume type type world. Right. Mm -hmm. And sure. it obviously makes it very easy to communicate stuff because, you know, it you can't like precisely measure like how many cups of broccoli someone has on their plate. But as far as like rough proportions go, oh, okay, you're having pro like lean protein and some yeah. vegetable carbohydrate source. Um, that, I think that's a really, really cool idea. Yeah. I'm totally going to steal that. Like if I suspect somebody like potentially might need a referral or additional help with that, I'm going to maybe be like, take, take a picture of your food for the next couple of days. I want to see what you're eating. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, these dietitians, they, they are the deal. So I think they're way underutilized in sports medicine and dance medicine. So um, that's that's been a, a big go-to for me now that we kind of have, like I said, this community around us. So absolutely utilize to everybody, um, utilize your dietitians. They're awesome with getting this problem tuned up. Yeah. Now, if someone, so I guess outside of the professional or maybe even collegiate setting, if we're dealing with more of like our local companies and studios, um, what kinds of educational stuff about diet should we be like, what kinds of conversations should we be having with, with those groups? So what I've been having, especially starting with like the local studios with the younger kids is just what we were talking about, like looking mm -hmm. at your body as your instrument, as your machine and how we take care of that instrument and machine and how important it is to not compare that to others. Um, and a lot of the companies and the studios around here, um, whenever they bring me in to talk, they bring the parents in as well. Cause I think that it's equally important for the parents to hear this message, um, for the dancers to all hear this message together, not just one-on-one -on -one in their doctor's visit to where in the teachers to hear this message to where we're all on the same page because they hold each other accountable. And so the teachers have come to me saying, yes, we've seen some of these things happening or the parents have come to me like, Oh, the teacher was doing some of this. And I, I'm not, 
not saying it needs to be a this, 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 but kind of getting everybody to understand more how things are perceived as we're changing that culture. Um, I think it helps because these studios that are doing that, they're invested as the team of into the team approach of dancer, parent, studio instructors um, to make this better. And so it just creates a good environment. Um, And so that we don't have to get down into the nitty gritty with that. We just need to identify our at-risk people, create a good, consistent culture of taking care of ourselves. And when we find those at-risk people, getting them the help they need through multidisciplinary care. Mm -hmm. Are there any other things that you see from a disordered eating or like body dysmorphia standpoint Um, when it comes to the performing arts? One thing that's kind of interesting um, is some of the trauma that comes with that um, in that a lot of dancers, it's amazing how much trauma comes from like one note or critique that they get, you know, and so, and how much that can stick with them. And so I've had dancers that maybe start to, be doing well. They're kind of going into remission where eating disorders, like actual eating disorders versus disordered eating come from. Um, and then all it takes is one just well-intended comment or critique, and it puts them back in that place or others that even get away from it for a while. And then maybe they did well, they kind of stayed away. Let's say they were doing ballet and that's whenever they were having trouble. And then they go and they take a ballet class and then they, they say, wow, my, my body looked different. I was looking in the mirror and I, all of a sudden it came flooding back. And so there's a fair amount of trauma that comes into some of the, the body comparison and when you start to bring in the eating disorders to it. And so I think that's where the mental health piece is very important to support through that because some of these, these traumas are buried with some of the adaptive and maladaptive coping mechanisms that you use to get through it. And so by working with a counselor, which I think is really important for any human being, regardless of what you've gone through, just in like every now and then, you know, or um, on a regular basis, if you've really struggled from something just to help you work through this stuff, I think it's important. And I'll tell really all patients that I'm seeing, you know, if a lot of times it's uncomfortable to work through those things, um, but it can make the difference. I, I use the analogy of um, a messy closet is that it's kind of like you've, you've had these different things come up, these blows, these critiques, these self-inflicted you know, wounds on ourselves to where you just basically have it and then you throw it in the closet, shut the door, throw it in the closet, shut the door to where eventually you just have this mess of a closet that you really don't know what to do with. And it just comes flooding at you whenever you open the door. So what do you do with this closet? You know, you basically, you call Marie Kondo. She shows up, she's going to help you organize the closet, right? And so, you know, here's this person and it's kind of weird with this person you don't really know at first, but here's this person who sees this messy closet and helps you to know what to do with it. So sometimes are you going to have to throw stuff out? Yes. And it's going to feel uncomfortable. Is it going to be weird to have Marie Kondo in your house? For sure. Is it going to be super stressful to see your stuff scattered all over the floor while you're trying to figure out the organization of it all? Yes, absolutely. But that's what has to be done to get it all put away in a way that you can walk into that closet and know what you're doing with it. And so mental health, whether it's depression, anxiety, eating disorders, all of these things that come with that, it's important to have that roadmap that counseling can give you. And so as you can see, I'm a huge advocate of PT and RDs <laughs> and counselors. I think it's this multidisciplinary piece that helps keep the dancers whole. I, I just want you to know that your analogies spark joy with me. <laughs> She's amazing. Spark She's joy. amazing. 
<laughs> no, but I mean, like that's that clutch. <laughs> I, I try. Sometimes <laughs> too hard. Um, I love the the collaboration piece that 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 you brought up because I, I do feel like, regardless of what profession you're in, like in the healthcare sphere, I feel like it's very easy to be competitive and like, oh, you know, don't see this person or don't see that doctor. And I think sometimes in with the performing arts in general, it becomes a little bit harder because I feel like there's an extra level of being vetted, you know, like artists are a lot of times very hesitant because if they go see somebody that that maybe doesn't have a big dance background, they're worried that that's going to mean I can't dance. Or they're just going to tell me, like, you know, don't dance for two weeks and everything will be better. And I I feel like that that collaboration is just such a big component to providing a really healthy environment and and really fostering like a healthy culture as we as we see kind of like this identity of dance shift to with some more positive, positive stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tell dancers whenever I first start working with them look, I'm not going to tell you you can't dance unless you absolutely can't dance. My goal is always to keep the athletes on the field, to keep the dancers dancing, you know, and we will do everything we can to get you there. But it may look different up front as we're getting you back safely. And so I think setting that expectation is important to let them know, hey, we're meeting you where you're at. You know, this is my intention to as much as yours, you know, and, you know, I think the thing that is frustrating to all of us is the idea of just don't dance, just, just rest for a couple weeks. You know, I got one more analogy. You know, I think it's akin to parking a car (laughs) at the garage. You know, if you park the car in the garage because the check engine light came on for two weeks, the check engine light is still going to come on whenever you leave the next time. It's not magically just going to turn off. And so I think that's important. We got to pay attention to that check engine light and get it in with the proper mechanic to figure out what it is we need. Sometimes it's just an oil change, you know, sometimes it's just a wheel or tire rotation, you know, but we got to pay attention to these lights as they come on. And I think letting the dancer know our intentions and then utilizing that team approach. Um, I just think there's nothing better for them, for any athlete, for any patient. Yeah. Do you have a background in like car racing or are you like, do you like really like cars? Did you grow <laughs> yeah, up with like a 67 Chevelle or something? <laughs> you know, it's funny you asked that because, um, my husband's into cars. Um, I know nothing about cars. Like my, I, I'm not into racing cars, anything like that. Like my only frame of reference is like Talladega Nights, which, you know, good enough for me. Fantastic movie. <laughs> it yes, is a absolutely. fantastic movie. Help me, Tom Cruise. I, much like Ricky Bobby in this whole telemedicine world, I don't know what to do with my hands as a physical therapist. Right? I, I end up waving <laughs> as I'm getting off, you know, like as I'm like leaving the room, I'm like, all right, bye. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> okay, let right. me. So really awkward. Zoom meetings are like there's a really so the different like streaming platforms or connection platforms that we have, the end time is very different between each platform. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed with Zoom calls is it's like it's like that awkward like, bye. But then it's like we're walking to the same location like. We're like, oh, I'm going to go to my car now. And then, like, our cars are parked <laughs> each other. Because I'm like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to leave the meeting. And I'm like, bye. And it takes, like, another 10 seconds to leave. And it's just, like, awkward silence. <laughs> Here, what do I do? That's awesome. I've only been in a handful of Zoom meetings, just given the medical stuff. And, you know, they've got the HIPAA-compliant version. But we have our own version that we use as far as our meetings. And so the ones that I've been in, 
I've kind of like freaked out at the end and just like shut the computer. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. Let's just shut the computer. I, I had one. So uh, I'm, I participate in like a PT, AT rehab mentorship group called the Level Up Initiative. And I had this mentee. And for like the first like two months of us like talking and hanging out, I couldn't see him on his computer. And like it, it looked like he was in a room filled with smoke. And I was just like, dude, like, what is going on? Like, is there something wrong with your computer? Turns out he just never cleaned the camera off. He had, like, had a sticky note on there because he was afraid of the FBI. And, like, he pulled it off, and there was just still some adhesive over the top of the camera. And he's like, he's like, one day he was just sitting there, and he was like, huh, that's weird. And, like, scraped it off and was like, people can see me again. That's it's, hilarious. It, it's just also sad that that's one of my funny stories from Corona because this is where, <laughs> where we are right now in the world. You know, we're <laughs> hanging on to those stories. That's what that's what we need more of right yeah, now. Tiger King, Talladega Nights, Marie Kondo. That's right. That's right. A little TikTok. Got to yep. get that TikTok in there. I'm we'll eager to see your TikTok him. video. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've been other people. So Danielle wants me to get one to do dances, and she sent me the savage dance. Um, I have attempted to learn some of it. Um, have you? That's good. I didn't know that. I made the pre-contemplation phase. I've at least watched the YouTube video several times and I've thought about starting to do it. Uh, you know, it's to... more palatable with the Carol Baskin version. Oh, really? Do that one. To where hey, you go, Carol everybody. Baskin. Yeah. Huh. Danielle, do you have a TikTok? Uh, I do have a TikTok. I will share it with you after this yes. so that not all the listeners get the <laughs> I want to see you guys duets. I want to see like uh-huh. duet a dance. Okay. If we can do duets on there, I will I will get a TikTok and do it with you because it's I on. I mean I don't have any shame as it is, but like I feel like I, I need someone to to kind of like push me into this a little bit more. Um I've also been told I recently adopted a kitten. And I've been told that I should make a TikTok for for the cat as well. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we just went on that tangent, but I feel like that's you know, perfectly in line with Corona. Right I know. <laughs> I do have a question. Do you have any suggestions for young clinicians wanting to get involved with local dance studios or with companies and build this collaborative model that you have? Because I think. It's beautiful in the most ideal situation, but I've been working tirelessly, you know, for the past eight, 10 months to try to build something like you have. And it's not as easy as it seems. For sure. I think, you know, one of the the biggest pieces of advice in sports medicine that has ever been given to me, um, the head team physician at the University of Oklahoma, Brock Schnabel, said to me when I was in fellowship, he, he said, always make yourself available. You know, that's going to be the thing is that the athletes need to trust you and they need to know that you'll be there whenever they, they need you. And so I think that's something that is hard sometimes for the dance community is because a lot of times, especially at the studio level, you know, not necessarily the professional level as much, which I mean that too, in many cases, it's not that people have been falling all over themselves to take care of them, you know, and it's kind of seems sometimes that people are trying to capitalize off of them. And why do I want to bother with this relationship? Are they even going to be there when we need them anyway? And so they're open, but they're not like necessarily 
going to pursue you. You know what I mean? And so my thing is, is I, I basically just made myself available to them. And so I reached out, how can I help you? What are your needs? You know, would it be helpful to come in and lecture about X, Y, Z? You know, what are you seeing? Um, let me help. If you have a dancer that needs to be seen, here's my card. I will see them ASAP. I always prioritize dancers. My schedulers know like dancers get in like same day or within 24 hours. And, um, you know, you, cause you gotta be there when they're injured, they can't wait, you know, three weeks to get in, you know? And so I think having that easy button is what the, the dancers want and what they need because football has an easy button. Basketball has an easy button, but where's the dancer's easy button. And so I think being that person who can provide them the resources and can be their easy button is, is the best way to expand out to being able to care for these individuals. Mm-hmm. And so like we had kind of talked about this with Michelle when she was talking about access to like collegiate um, medical professionals for the dance community. And I feel like that's a really big message that if you are interested or you do work in the performing arts that you should probably reach out because there's a lot of studios from on the local level or even at the college level that don't have that that support. I mean, some of the research that I've seen, there may be quote unquote direct access medical care in a college, but that just may mean that they can go to student health. Right. It doesn't mean that they have somebody that understands that population or that would be a good fit to work with them. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you look at the University of Oklahoma. I mean, we're we're a big university. We've got a very well, a lot of very well-known sports. I mean, our gymnastics team, our, our softball team, our of course, our football team. I mean, we have a lot of national level attention. And as a result, you know, we have a very strong, well-developed sports medicine department, you know, with multiple dietitians and counselors and a psychiatrist and then double-digit orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine doctors for every team. I mean, we are very, very well supported at the university. Also at the University of Oklahoma, we have one of the top three dance programs in the country and have been for a long, long time. They don't have, or they didn't have an athletic trainer until I basically sent one to the, the College of Dance because they're not under the athletic department. Even though they are just as good of athletes and just as hardworking, they don't have an athletic trainer assigned to them. Um, you know, I was the first person to come through as their company physician. There wasn't anybody taking care of them before. And it's just because so often it's kept separate. And so um, that's going to be a piece that they're absolutely at the same level that the athletes are at the universities, but very, very often it's so separate, they don't get to utilize those resources. And so being able to bring those to them and help coordinate that for them to help their model look more like what the athletic department has is very much desired. I think across the country is very much desired. And so, you know, some places are getting better to where we're putting like one of our other universities, University of Central Oklahoma, we have an AT that's hired by the university to be there. But I think getting more of that um, is is going to be a game changer. And, and, you know, if we look at other models, like in Australia, for example, I mean, most companies and most programs have a physical therapist mm-hmm. assigned to them. You know, that's that's pretty, pretty common. Like, it's kind of unusual not to. So the more that we can start moving to that, I think the better. And really, I think it just starts with asking and getting involved in offering the help. And it's interesting that you bring that up because it's one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about because I have an AT background and I've worked with performing artists. And it's just like there's so many 
like boundaries to that because a lot of times the dance departments don't have a lot of funding, especially at smaller universities and colleges. And I think the thing that people don't realize is that unlike collegiate athletics, you can't just redshirt in a dance program. Right. Right. Like if you have an injury, you know, that labral tear that that may require surgery, like that could be one to two semesters that you have to make up. And right. I feel like there's a little bit more on the line as a collegiate dancer than there is as a football player. Mm-hmm. For you sure. Know? Like in both cases, yeah, you may not be able to make it professionally. You know, you may not be like the next um I don't know. I'm just going to insert famous football player here. Tom Brady. There we go. Okay. Like I'm in my dance mode right now, so I can't think of sports for it. Um, but, you know, like you may not be the next Tom Brady or Missy Copeland, but it doesn't mean that that's not meaningful to you and that you shouldn't have the support and, and the resources to be able to, to continue to improve and progress as an artist or an athlete. Um, Absolutely. And like what you mentioned as far as you can't redshirt, I mean, not only that, but this is their majors, you know, this is their grade and you can only get so so much of a grade whenever you're not dancing. I mean, I, as somebody, you know, who ultimately went to med school, I needed my GPA to be high. And so the idea of starting off as a freshman with a bum ankle sitting sidelined, I I couldn't get full, full marks based on Mm -hmm. that, you know? And so I know a lot of people are making accommodations and I appreciate that, but at the same time, how do you score a dancer who's not dancing, you know? And so here, like you said, longer um, time to graduation, more money. I mean, to come out on a career that's not going to pay that back in, you know, fades, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely hard because, you know, that was a big decider for me is that my parents said, they're like, look, you only have this many semesters of scholarship, you know, you don't need to burn it sitting sidelined, find yourself a major that you can actually be doing. And when you get better, get back into dancing. And they, they weren't wrong. You know, I was so mad at them at the time, but they weren't wrong. Yeah. It's just, it's like coming, especially coming from a more like traditional field sports background or or barbell sports. It was just something that was very eye opening for me. I didn't realize that that was the type of pressure that was on a dancer who may have an injury in the collegiate setting. Yeah. And it's just like when you realize like that that's their grade, it changes the whole perspective on everything yeah. because then maybe as a healthcare provider, maybe you don't want to say, Hey, just take two weeks off, you know, go park the Lambo in the garage for two weeks. Who cares <laughs> if the back engine lights on, you know, like it, it's much more critical and, and imperative that we have a collaborative environment where we can address those things that are going on. And so like, I wish we could just clone you and put you like in <laughs> Texas and Virginia so that we yes. have more people to build like a program around. Well, thank um, you. But like how, so we've talked a little bit about like this collaborative environment, but are there resources that we should go to as clinicians to find more people and make connections? Yes. Um. You know, I think that, International Association of Dance Medicine and Science has been a great resource as far as getting more contacts across the country to be able to collaborate with, you know, dance professionals of all different specialties. Um, That's, I really like that professional organization since it's not just physicians, it's not just one note. And there's good studies that come out of that. You know, as you guys know, dance medicine research is not on par with the rest of medical research or even the rest of sports medicine research. And so a lot of the best stuff is coming from 
people affiliated with IADAMS. Um, PAMA, Performing Arts Medicine Association, is also very good to be a part of. Um, and so I think that a lot of those contexts have, have been very important for me, at least, um, especially with knowing who's where, you know, because if I've got a dancer in Houston, you know, I know know who to send her to. But when I, if I have a dancer in Kansas City, you know, I'd probably have to start making phone calls. But at least I know the place to start, you know, from people that I've met, you know, different places. Yeah, yeah I Adams, th this is the second time we've talked about I Adams. Yeah, today. it is. Uh, <laughs> but I Adams is, uh, for lack of a better term, dope AF. They are it just, is. It's, there's so many different types of people from all sorts of professions and walks of life. And it's really like such a welcoming and diverse uh, group that has so many resources and, and stuff. So if you're going to I Adams next year in Denver, um, we need to just get like a party room or something and yeah, like have do it was on <laughs> our podcast and just come hang out. Let's do it. I will definitely be there in Denver. Um, I was planning to go to Tokyo and I'm very bummed about that. I was taking my six year old, I guess then would be seven year old with me. She traipses the globe with me as well. I do like to travel a lot. And so we had this whole trip planned for Tokyo. So I'll be there with bells on in Denver. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're, de we're definitely gonna have to do like a, like a booth or something. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I'm that interesting. So <laughs> I, I don't know that I have any like super absurd habits. Um, but one thing that I do that is probably pathological, but it works is I make crazy amounts of lists. I love making lists. And so I will be the person who will accomplish something that wasn't on the list. So go back and write it down so I can check it off. And so um, that's something that I'll do a lot of times like that. I think it's kind of fun and kind of cool is that I'll even make lists for my goals. And so I will sit down and I will write out like just my wildest dreams, like what I want to do professionally or personally or travel. And I'll just write out all these things and then I save it and I check back in with it like every six months or so to see what I'm doing to work toward that. And honestly, it kind of lights a fire underneath me to keep chipping away. And it's been surprising how many of those big, dumb goals that I've put on there <laughs> actually come and worked out because I've been able to look at them and visualize and think about what the steps are going to be. And so I think my husband thinks I'm a little crazy because um, we do this. But um, I think that's a pretty fun thing to do. Um, also, it's a little absurd as I travel way more than is reasonable. Um, <laughs> and then the fact that I do travel my child with me everywhere we went to Costa Rica last year and Germany before that. And we just like traipse around the world together and go on these little like mommy daughter adventures. And it's fun. That sounds amazing. Not absurd. I, like I would love that <laughs> as a child. <laughs> I think she's getting a little, um, I don't think she realizes that it's a special thing. I think she's just kind of like, Oh yeah. Our trip to Tokyo. It's like, okay. <laughs> clearly, clearly she doesn't understand. It's a cool thing. But anyway, what are bad recommendations that you hear in your profession or areas of expertise? I hate the phrase, no pain, no gain. That is my least favorite recommendation. Um, I think it's, it's just bad advice. Um, I think it was the 1950s football, you know, like 
man up, power through, you know, oh, you got your bell rung? Well, get that helmet on and go back in there. You know, the, the old way of something's hurt, let's just shoot it up with a numbing medicine and you keep going. And as we know, as, you know, health professionals, none of that advice turned out <laughs> well. And I feel like the no pain, no pain game principle isn't, isn't a good idea. So I think that better, I think that you should pay attention and learn to understand your pain and know what's going to be that soreness. And does that soreness mean that I just worked hard or does it mean that maybe I needed to train a little differently leading up to, or maybe I need to back off and recover in a certain way? Is that pain that something's injured and wrong and I need to get that looked at? I mean, even emotional pain, you know, if I'm disappointed and I'm crying and I'm upset or I'm angry, what does that mean? And is that okay? Is that a normal, okay response? And so I think more importantly, it's better to say, understand your pain so that you know what to do with it. No, I just want to say, I heard that so much growing up, the no pain, no game, especially when it comes to the point shoes. And I mean, we could have a whole nother podcast on point shoes, but it was always like, it will not be pain free. So just suck it up and get over it. Like, point will hurt. And I was like, okay, you know, like you're 12 years old. You're like, of course it will. Like that makes sense. Like your foot is in a crazy position. So I agree with you. That's terrible. It's funny. One of the most eye-opening things for me was my very first day working with Oklahoma city ballet. One of the court of ballet women had her, had taken her shoes off to show me something. And she had the most beautiful feet I've ever seen. And this is somebody who had been dancing professionally for about 10 years. I mean, so she had been dancing in point shoes for a long time and absolutely gorgeous feet, no calluses, no like scars or like bloody spot. I mean, nothing, just very pretty toes and very pretty pedicured toenails. She had her toenails. I mean, and so it was funny because like, I guess I, I knew that um, a lot of the injuries to feet has to do with a poorly fit point shoe, right? But I don't think I realized how important it was until I saw how perfect her feet looked. And, you know, that's not going to be everybody, but I think that a lot of the time, whenever there's an area that just keeps getting irritated, I I do think many people are dancing in point shoes that are just not fit well to them. Um, I I started in like, I think, Capizio Pavlova's, Mm -hmm. and I don't know that those are fit like to anybody. I don't make them anymore, but like they were this like tiny little taper of my foot, just even just looking at it. I'm like, whose idea was this, you know? And so no wonder I'm sinking and I'm squishing and I'm scratching. And, you know, so I think that as much as we can just like start thinking about like, oh, well, okay, it's painful in this area and it's bleeding. Well, maybe that's because it's not supported here. And maybe we modify there. I think we could change the game. Jacob has never experienced that, right? You've never been in a point shoot before? No. But although, so, okay, talking with Emily on the last podcast, as well as all this discussion about TikTok, (laughs) I feel like what we should do is start a YouTube channel that's associated with this podcast where I just do stupid things, which aren't actually stupid, but for me, they would be stupid. Like, film me at a pole dancing class. Film me trying out acrobatic or like uh, aerial list things, yes, like, or something like that. Um, one is a way to kind of like spread the message out a little bit more and get people like exposed to things. I also think objectively it'd be hilarious to see me on a pole. So maybe me doing a point class, if we could find a perhaps a ballet instructor that would be so patient as to have me attempt point. I'll um, help you. I'll teach you. <laughs> I, I feel like that's kind of like where we should be headed. Uh, 
And I don't know if that's just the Corona talking or uh, if that's what the people actually want. I know they want more tutu content. So, um, Definitely. I don't know. We could talk about that this at a later time, but I thought I would just mention my uh, my desire to try out some of these things that I have had no experience with. Because um, at the very least, it one, it's funny, it spreads awareness, but I think it would give me a greater appreciation for a lot of the things that the, the artists I'm working with have to go through. And then, Danielle, you're going to deadlift 315, so uh, well. <laughs> Once I get access to Barbell again, soon. Yeah, once you get access to a barbell, like I will start doing weekly training for you, and we'll get you strong, stronger. All right, I have one more legitimate question. What is your favorite Oklahoma City food? Ooh, Oklahoma City food. I think like native to Oklahoma City, like or just something that I like to eat in Oklahoma City. I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm, I know this doesn't seem like, um, something you would want to get in Oklahoma city, um, at all, but I, my favorite place in Oklahoma city is sushi Nico. I think they have really yummy sushi and it's like just my comfort food. And so, um, it's, it's great. You'd be surprised. Oklahoma city actually has a really great diverse food scene considering what you would expect from Oklahoma city. And so Mm -hmm. we've been growing so much and, our art scene has grown and it's changing and our food scene is so great. I mean, we're, we're mostly vegan most of the time. Um, and even just being able to have vegetarian and vegan options here lately, that's really been great, which has been hard. You know, we're doing this for some health purposes, which I don't advise for everybody, but you know, we also, you know, being in Oklahoma, can't beat the steakhouses. So there are some amazing steakhouses around here. So I got to give them, give them a little bit of a nod as well. So I've only been to Oklahoma one time and it was for my buddy's wedding in 2017. Uh, we flew to Edmond and I, I don't know exactly where we were. We rented out like an Airbnb. Uh, and the only thing I remember eating other than wedding food was Whataburger. Mm. Oh no. Uh, so I, I don't really have like a good idea of what's in Oklahoma other than the tornado siren that scared the crap out of me at noon on a Saturday and getting Whataburger after I had was incredibly intoxicated at a wedding. So, well, as we've been having this conversation, um, we have had a wall cloud pass over us. I don't know if you heard the thunder as we've been talking, um, the rain was hitting. We're in a tornado watch right now. And so just sitting right here in true Oklahoma fashion, sitting by the window, getting ready to go out on the lawn and look and see if I can see the nader. So, you know, (laughs) it's what we do. I've never heard it described as a nader before. Now now I like only want to use that term. It's really the only correct term. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way that they can do that? So a couple of ways. Um, I'm on social media. Um, my handle is at the dancer doctor, all one word. And I do tend to respond when I can to my social media accounts. Um, I also, you can reach me by my email and it's at the dance or I'm sorry, it's the dancer doctor at gmail.com. Um, I do ask that if you guys are interested in hearing more about these kind of topics that you follow me on Instagram and Facebook, I tend to post a lot of these types of topics and I'm always open to posting and teaching more about topics that 
you know, other people might be interested in. You, you're going to get a follow from me in like three minutes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank <laughs> you so sure. much. And thank you for having me. Danielle, I know you already follow Megan, but I I'm going to have to follow her too. Uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, Danielle, what, where do they find you? My Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle a nice underscore DPT. I think, I think Megan, we can both agree that she is a very nice PT. She's a very nice PT. <laughs> and then I wish if, that wasn't my middle name sometimes. I wish it wasn't. <laughs> it's great though, because I feel like it's a, you know, it's like a twofer. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that an Oklahoma term? Twofer? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think that means like it's two things for like in one. Two for the price of one. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then if you guys want to look at some low quality rehab memes, uh, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at TMD underscore the movement docs, where it's just memes, especially memes about Carol Baskin, um, <laughs> dancing, pain, what have you, and then just podcast stuff. So. So Jacob, did she, do you think she murdered her husband? Do I like, I may have to cut this part out. Should I? No, I'm going to leave it in. (laughs) I I feel, I feel like the way that it was portrayed in the show, she definitely fed her husband to the tigers. No doubt. Didn't she say something in there? Like, Oh, well I wouldn't have done this, but if you did, you would just have to cover them with, you know, and then proceeds to describe how he would go about doing such a thing. It's just like, it's a little sketchy. And I'm pretty sure they did reopen the case on her husband. Did if they? I'm not mistaken. I believe they did. Yeah. Also those wedding photos. Like, can we talk about that? Like what is, wow. I kind of loved them. I, you know, I'm kind of like was living for the, um, the whole, uh, leash thing. Um, <laughs> Something. It's yeah. something. It, it like there was a little bit of like a Fred and um, like Wilma Flintstone aesthetic to it, but then also just like a lot of crazy cat lady thrown in there. It was maybe Wilma and Dino, Dino, Dino. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The that brontosaurus. Was, that was their little pet brontosaurus thing. That's yeah, I, I, I don't know, but we I think we can all agree that it's a great piece of Americana. Um, it is it, as an Oklahoman, you know, and unfortunately and fortunately it, it was very close to home, many, much of what we saw. And so very interesting to see a lot of that. Yeah. I uh, can't tell you how many times I've YouTubed. Uh, I saw a tiger and listened to the song <laughs> on, at night. Um, <laughs> yeah. <gasps> Corona is a weird time. Yeah, it is a weird time. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys again for tuning in this week where we spoke with Dr. Megan Meyer. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or if you want to talk more about Tiger King conspiracy theories, uh, go ahead and shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys again, and as always, don't break a leg.